0: Hey, this is Ken Finnan at Capital Vintage Sutter. It's my job to get you past the SIE exam. 14 customer accounts, so much fun. Okay, these chapters are boring. I'm trying to make them as good as I can, but not much I can do. So there are two types of accounts. There's a cash account and a margin account. A cash account means you're paying for everything up front. You're not borrowing money against it. You're not selling short anything. Maybe a covered call, but it is attached. So a cash account means you're paying for everything up front within four days, right? So T settlement is T plus two. We talked about the last chapter. Um, right T settlement, when your payment date is, is four days, T plus four or S plus two, settlement plus two. But again, cash account means you're paying for everything up front, all of it. Ah, Let's not say up front. Let's say you're paying for everything, the entire amount. Buy $100,000 worth of stock. I pay 100 grand. Now a margin account, It's a little different. It's where you're borrowing the money to buy. Like when somebody buys a house, they don't pay for the whole thing. They pay for a portion of it. So a margin account is you want to buy $10,000 worth of stock. They only make you deposit 50%. That's the reg T requirement. That's the initial deposit. So if you want to buy stock in a margin account and you want to buy $10,000 worth of stock, you put down five. You want to buy 20, you put down 10. They do have some limits we're going to talk about. But that's the kind of thing. So you're putting down 10 and borrowing the rest, which you have to pay back at some point. And when you get to the Series 7, if you are taking the 7, then you will have to do the math on that. But in this one, you should not have to. So if you're, if you, it's a long margin account, you're borrowing money from the dealer to buy stock, like a mortgage. You buy a house, you borrow money from a bank, and that is like leverage. On the short side, if you're shorting stock, which we talked about before, and I have a video on it, I can put it here, here, wherever it goes. Um, it's basically you're borrowing the shares. So, whenever you sell something short, it has to be done in a margin account because you're borrowing. So, it's a good way to remember if you see the word borrow, either funds or shares, it's going to be in a margin account. Now, when we open up a margin account, there's rules because you're borrowing money. So, we have three things that you have to worry about inside the margin agreement. Okay. Inside that, when you open the account, you do the new account stuff, that's fine. Inside the new account form is the, with this margin, is called the margin agreement. The margin agreement has to be signed by the client. This is the first thing you have to sign, okay? The new account form isn't signed, but this one is. So the credit agreement is basically just what the terms of the loan are, interest rate, all that crap. That has to be signed. The hypothecation agreement is just saying, it's called the pledge, if you want to call it. So if you buy $10,000 worth of stock, you're going to put down five and borrow five. You're borrowing that five. They're going to use the 10000 in stock that you bought as collateral for the five you're borrowing. That's hypothecation. And if you see the word rehypothecation, that's just the broker-dealer taking 70% of your, 140% of your debit balance and sending it to a bank and getting the money to lend you. That's not on this exam. I would think not. But rehypothecation, God forbid you see it, is the broker-dealer pledging your securities to the bank to get the money to lend you. Now, the loan consent form is, is optional. You don't actually have to sign it, which means you don't have to agree to it. Okay. If you own stock in a margin account and you sign the loan consent form, you're allowing the broker dealer to lend your shares to other broker, to other people who are shorting the stock. Remember, when you short stock, you have to get a borrow. Where do they borrow them from? Margin accounts. So the loan consent form, the loan consent agreement is optional. You don't have to agree to it, which means you don't have to sign it. And that's just saying you're going to allow your shares to be borrowed, shorted, lent, whatever you want to call it, to a short seller. So when you open up a um, margin account, you're going to get a uh, disclosure document. It's just basically, a. Mar- always remember this one. Whenever you have a disclosure, if you hear the word disclosure, it's always the first thing, okay? So option disclosure, margin disclosure, it's the first thing you do. Disclosures come first. So, the disclosure doc, if I say that word one more time, shoot myself. Margin disclosure, oh, well, margin disclosure statement is basically just listing all stuff like they're risky. You can lose more money than you deposited. We can force the sale, stuff like that. All the disclosures about margin, that they can change the maintenance and all that other stuff. Let's say you want to open an options account, which is what I tell everyone. Remember this DATO 15, D A T O 15. Remember that, okay? So, DATO 15, when you open an options account, First, you have the disclosure doc. Boom, disclosure again. Then you get it approved. That's the A, by a registered option principle. Then they can start doing trades. That's the third, DAT, disclosure approval trade. The O, O15, is the options agreement. The options agreement is after it's been approved and you started trading, you have 15 days to return it. You have 15 days to return it signed. If you don't return it signed, then you can only do what they call closing transactions which means if you bought a call or bought a put, you can only then sell those calls or puts. If you shorted a call or shorted a put, then you can always buy them back. So if you don't return the options agreement within 15 days, then you can only do what they call liquidating transactions, which means getting rid of your position. They can't force you to do anything, but that's all you're allowed to do. So remember, date 15, disclosure, approval, trade, options agreement 15 days later. Love it. So discretionary accounts cause a big problem because people don't really understand what it is. Discretion. Okay. Discretion versus non-discretion. Non-discretion means I'm the register rep. I call you up and say, Hey, Larry, Bobby, Mary, great names. Um, do you want to buy this stock? I think it's a good buy. You say yes. And I do it. I don't, I can't make decisions on my own. I can solicit. I can call you up and say, I think you should do this, but you still have to say yes. It can be verbal. It doesn't have to be written. But on the other side, we have discretion. So discretion is where you let me, you're the customer. You let me, the register rep, actually do trades without telling you ahead of time. You're going to get a confirm. Two days later, you'll get a confirm what we did, but you won't know what we did when I did it because I don't need to ask your permission. So I can do any suitable trade, okay? So if I choose either the amount, like four or five, fix that, 8,000 shares, two shares, whatever it is, buy or sell or the security any one of those three things if i choose the security if i choose the amount or buy or sell as the rep i need i need power of attorney or discretion signed in my hand from you okay i need it in hand i can't you can't say oh can i send it it doesn't matter if i don't have it in my possession can't do anything now there's different levels of that but before i go there So if I so if you call me up and say, Ken, buy a thousand shares of IBM and you hang up, I can do the trade because you gave me the buyer, the sell, you gave me the amount, and you gave me the security. If I'm just choosing the time of day to do it and the price, then it's not discretion. That's just kind of not held. I don't need written approval for that. I just, if you give me the three things, then we're good to go. Now, if I get discretion, it has to be in writing. There's two levels there's limited and full. Limited means I can do any suitable trade. Now there's there's levels. Like basically the limited is the most basic one is I the rep can do any suitable trade on your behalf without getting your permission. Then you can range it up to all different permissions. Like I can do, I can, I don't know, I can open a margin account for you, or I can pay checks for you, or I can withdraw my fees. There's different levels, all the way up to full power of attorney. Which is basically saying I have control of your account. I can write checks, I can pay your bills, I can do trades, I can withdraw money, I can send money to your kids, I can do all that. A lot that's like the golden manna from heaven, right? For um for like a registered rep or investor advisor is to get all of that. Because they can charge fees for that and they're controlling your account. So that's full power of attorney. Now remember something. Full power of attorney dies at death. Okay. So if, if you gave me power of attorney and then you die, it's done, it ends. Even if you see the word durable, it doesn't freaking matter. All power of attorney ends at death, no matter what. Also, it ends at incapacitation. So if you get, God forbid, no, but if you get into a coma or you're under, say, you're whatever, whatever happens. Say you're out for two weeks. Maybe you're being on a ventilator or something. Very apropos for 2021 or 2020. Um, you can't, the power of attorney is gone for that point. Unless you do what they call durable durable power of attorney goes through incapacitation. So if you're in a coma or out of it, or you've been declared mentally incompetent, then the durable still works. You have to sign that when you're not incapacitated. So limited and full power of attorney, regular ones end at either death or incapacitation or incompetence, whatever it is. Durable goes through that, but it still ends at death. No matter what power of attorney ends at death, no matter what, there is no way to have power of attorney go past the person dies, that's why people set up trusts. So it's people set up a trust that would go past the death, because it's not—it's about the trust, not about you. So if I am going to put something, if I'm going to do a trade for you in a discretion account, where I don't need to tell you ahead of time, I do have to disclose any conflicts of interest. Like, say I work for Bank America and I want you to buy Bank America stock, or I'm going to have you buy Bank America stock, I have to tell you ahead of time. If I'm going to have you buy a muni bond and my dad's the mayor of the town, I have to tell you ahead of time. If I put you in a limited partnership, even if it's in a conflict, it's just a thing. If I have control and I have discretion and I want to put you in a limited partnership or something where I have a control relationship with or some sort of conflict, I just have to tell you ahead of time. And then you can do it as long as I tell you. okay. And let's let's go a little farther and say not only do I have to tell you, I have to get written consent. I have to get, so those three things. So if I'm going to put you, I can do any suitable trade. But if I put you in something where I have a conflict, I have a control relationship, or um, it's a limited partnership, I need your permission before I do the trade. Okay, fee-based first, commission-based. Okay, so normal accounts that you know of are commission-based, right? Where every time we do a trade, we charge you a commission or a markup for every single transaction. And we only get paid if you get... A transaction. So if you, if I give you advice and you don't do it, I can't charge you. I can only charge you if you actually do the fee, if you do the transaction. The fee based is more like I'm getting a percentage of assets under management. Like if you have a million dollar portfolio, I charge you ten grand a year or five thousand a year, whatever it is. And that as a wrap fee, usually that's what it's called, a wrap fee, will cover all of your costs. So even if you trade a lot, you're only paying that five grand a year. Or trade a little bit, you're paying five grand. And that's why someone who doesn't trade a lot. The fee base is probably not the best way. Fee base is usually better for someone who trades a lot, because if you're paying one fee per month, no matter how much you trade, the more you trade, the better it is. Okay, so we have educational accounts. So we have two types, the Coverdell and the 529. We'll go down the list. Coverdell is is monitored and controlled by the federal government. There's a lot of stupid rules Then, So one, they have an income limit, which you don't have to know. They just, if you make too much money, boom, you can't put any money in it. There is a contribution limit of two grand a year. Boom. The next one is at 18, the kid has to get it. So if you put two grand a year into it, and then when they turn 18, they have to give it to the kid. Okay. That kid has to use it by the time they're 30. If they don't do it by the time they're 30, they, they're gonna basically have a um basically have to pay a penalty and taxes on it. Okay. Now, the good things are one, it can be used for any education. K through 12 and college and you can choose your own investments. You have, you're pretty unlimited in what you can choose as long as it's suitable. Okay. So you can buy options. You can bump, you can buy options. You can buy, as long as they're in, within the range um, of suitability, you can buy mutual funds. You can buy specific stocks. You can buy treasuries. You can buy T-bills, whatever you want to buy, you can do. That's the thing. So you are controlling your own destiny on that. The next one is a 529. It's for college. Now, they did change it, where you can use some of it for high school and stuff, but for the most part, this is for college savings. You put it in; it's run by the state, so the federal doesn't have a lot of rules on this. So here's what here's what the good thing is: um, there's no income limit, really. I mean, each state sets their own, so it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars versus a two grand a year. There's no income limit, and there's no age limits. If you don't, if you put it in, so if you set up a five twenty nine right now. And then each time you have a kid, you add your kid to it. If one of those kids doesn't go to school, then you can um, just transfer it to the other one. Now, it's really only for college. There's no age limits. There's really no contribution limits other than each state has their own. Okay. Now, let's talk about what's similar about both. Both of these, the money goes in after tax. So they're non-qualified. So if you put money in, you do not get the deduction from either the 529 or the covered out neither one. But the magic part is when it grows and you withdraw it, you pay zero taxes. As long as it's for education, you pay zero taxes. Wonderful. So again, Coverdell real quick, Coverdell, 2K max, income limits, 18, he gets it. At 30, he must use it. 529, no income limit other than state level, no age limits. Oh, the bad thing I forgot is with the 529, you're limited in what you can invest in, usually just like... um, Certain mutual funds, like each state has a list of what you can invest in. That's it. That's all you can invest in. So that's the thing. Covered out, you can choose anything you want, proof and reason. 529, you can only choose like mutual funds or certain things that they, that each state thinks it's acceptable. Now, if you buy it in your own state, so let's do this. Coverdell, you put the money in, you take it out, no, no federal taxes. If you put a, into a 529, you put it in, as long as you're using your own state, if you, if you live in Jersey and you buy a Jersey 529, then all the growth will be tax-free on the federal and the state level. But if you happen to buy a one that is outside the state, say you live in Jersey and, and you like the Ohio Choices of Investments better, you do that one. As the rep, you have to warn them that they might incur state taxes. It's not a big deal. You're talking 5 or 6%, but it is going to be there. So you have to keep an eye on that. Okay, the different types of customer accounts. We have an individual account. That's one person. That's you. You have an account, individual, that's you, basically. And only you can place account trades on it, orders, stuff like that, unless you name someone else through a power of attorney. So if you're married and you open an individual, your wife or husband cannot place orders and trades on that unless they have third party trading authorization or power of attorney. Okay. We can also create what they call a nominee or numbered account. Say, I'm famous, boo, 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 Ken Finn, and famous. I, um, Open an account, but I don't want people to know what I'm trading. I can create, make it a numbered or a nominee account where I'm not putting my name on it. Okay. So I'm putting an account number on it. Now, this way if somebody sees a trade, they'll just see like XJ42 and not know that it's me. Trust me. If you invested in my stuff, just do the if you if you see what I do, just do the opposite and you'll be fine. So now you put the money, you you do that, but you do have to sign something saying that this is my account so i can't i can put a a number on my account but the register rep will have somewhere an attestation they call it where i say this xj42 is my account because you can't not be liable for what's going on in that account okay a joint account these are more than one, one, two, three, four, five people so let's go through it so there's two there's two main types let's see if there's any more they list no that's okay so now the two main ones are joint tenants with rights of survivorship. That's one. And most accounts, when they're set up, are that's the default. The other one is tenants in common. Joint tenants with rights of survivorship. Think each person fully owns the account. We can both put, we can both execute trades. It's both our money. If we take the money out, it has to be, the check has to be written to both our names. Okay. Now, here's the difference. If I have an account with you guys and I get hit by a bus and die the entire account goes into your name boom it's your account now okay so that's the joint jtwros or joint tenancy with righteous of survivorship is if joint rights of survivorship means if the one person dies it goes across to the other person on the account and it could be five people on there one person dies the rest of them get it it stays in their account that's right of survivorship okay and that avoids probate because it's already written what's in there again probate not again probate is when the court gets involved and decides where your money goes. So if you have strict guidelines on where your money goes, probate shouldn't be that big a deal. But this one, there's none. Boom, joint rights to survivorship. I set it up. Uh, if me and you three, if I die, you guys get my money. Now, tenants in common, joint tenants in common, joint tenancy in common. It's you and I open an account. I put in 40000 you put in 60000 That's our percentages. We can both do trades, we can both withdraw money, all that stuff. That doesn't really change. But if I die, you don't get my money, my heirs do. So joint righteous survivorship goes across to the other person. Tenants in comedy, comedy, tenants in common goes down to the heirs, the beneficiaries, the estate. So if you see heirs, children, beneficiary, estate, stuff like that, it's a tenants in common. If you see to the other partner in the in the account, it's righteous survivorship. Also remember. That um, when they open the account, it's going to be under one tax ID number. It's going to be one of them. It does you don't, you can put both, but it's only going to be one. Okay. Corporate accounts. If we open a corporate account. That means we want to have a basically a an account with a corporation. Okay. So here, let's so here's what it is. You need all the background information, but what you do need is you need either the resolution or the corporate charter. The resolution is created by the board of directors that make that basically allows someone to run the account. Should open any kind of account, you need the corporate resolution, the list that says Johnny Jones is allowed to open an account for PepsiCo. That's what you're talking about. That's the resolution. And it says where they can do margin or options, stuff like that. If you want to have a margin or options account, you need the corporate charter. So basically, that's the charter is just a document saying that the corporation is allowed to have this type of account. So the resolution you need for everything. For options or margin, you need the corporate charter also. Boom. Now, on a partnership account, the partnership account is basically, it's not, like a, it's not like a joint account. It's a partnership, like a limited partnership or something like that. You need all the information from the partnership. You need the partnership agreement, which will actually authorize who can do trades and all that stuff. Okay? So the partnership agreement lists who can do trades, what, whether the partnership's allowed to have an account, stuff like that. Okay? Now. Any kind of account where it's not an individual or a person, like say it's a partnership or a corporate, you have to have what they call an authorized trader. You have to have a list of authorized traders, which is a list of people who can enter trades and, and give you instructions for the account. So you always need a list of authorized traders because it's different. So if I open an account with you, you know, it's me. But if a corporation opens it, you have to make sure like the truck driver for Pepsi doesn't call up and give nothing wrong with that job, but he shouldn't be making investment decisions. So... It's just a list of who can do trades. A trust is like an account where you set it up. You hire a trustee to manage it. But it's like, you know, if you have a lot of money or even a little bit, you set up a trust, like a separate account. Here, We'll call this a trust. You put this in here and you put the money in here or assets, whatever it is. And then you hire a trustee to manage it for beneficiaries. So say you have three kids. You want to make sure that you're okay. So you set up a trust. You put your money in there and you hire a trustee, which could even be yourself who manages that money for the for the beneficiaries as a whole. Not the oldest, not the youngest, not the loudest. All of them as a whole. So it has to be suitable for all of them. Now, there's two types of trust. There's revocable and irrevocable. Revocable means you put the money in and you can always take it out. As the grantor, the grantor is the person who set it up and funded it. So if I set up the trust and I put money in it and it's revocable, I can take the money out and change anything I want. The problem with that is that I don't get the legal protection. So If I do a revocable trust and then I get sued, this is part of my estate and it becomes taxable or attachable, if you want, if I get sued. An irrevocable one means I put the money in and I seal it off. I can put more money in, but once I put it in there, I can't take it out again. So it's no longer mine. So if I put the money in there, not fraudulently, but if I put money in there and then I get sued, that money can't be touched. So revocable means you can take the money out after you put it in and change the rules. Irrevocable means you can't. Once it's in there, it's locked. So if you ever see UGMA or UTMA or UTMA, which we may get to in this chapter, those are irrevocable. They're light trusts. They're not. They're accounts for children, but they're irrevocable. Once you put the money in, you can't take it out. It looks like we got to that. Okay, so now look at that. I'm prescient. Okay, so we have custodial accounts. These are for an example, if a 17-year-old walks into your office and wants to open an account, you got to kick him out. I have a rule. It's never, there's no, if you're ever in a room alone with a 17-year-old, nothing good ever happens. So kick them the hell out. So anytime that you have a child under 18 walk into your office, you have to kick them out. Sounds like good advice. Okay. So the point is, you will get a question on that. Can you open an account for a 17-year-old? No. Can you open a joint account with a mother and a child for a 17-year-old? No. It sounds like you could, but you can't because a 17-year-old is not legally allowed to sign a contract. So if they're under 18, you, if they're close to 18, you make them wait a month. But if they're under 18, you either open an UGMA, UGMA, or a UTMA. Depending on the state you're in, that decides. So these are for Uniform Gift to Minors Act, Uniform Transfer to Minors Act. couple things. When you set one up, it's one-to-one. One custodian who manages it and one child, okay? Either one of those. It's never two children, never two custodians, ever. So if you have two children and you and your wife want to open up accounts, you can open one. For Bob, and your wife can open up one for Bob. They're separate. And then Mary, you can open up one for Mary, and then your wife can open one for Mary. But they have to be one custodian, one child. Now, and anyone can donate money to it. It's just the custodian has to be one-to-one. Now, the main difference is here. The UGMA, you're limited what you can put in. It's pretty much just securities and cash. Once the kid turns 18, you have to give it to them, and they can do whatever they want. Um The taxes are going to be paid by the minor, but we'll get to that. So UTMA is a little more open. So you can put more things in there like baseball cards or anything that is collectible. So anything that is collectible, you can put into the UTMA. But the difference is you can control when they get it. So you can limit it to like they can't touch the money till they're 21, only up to 25, depending if the state allows it. So UGMA, restrictive, 818, it's a kid's UTMA, it can be up to 21. As late as 25, depending on the state, and you're allowed to do some more things. Now, back to this: any money that goes in there, the taxes. Any money that's gone in there is fine; it is what it is. But any tax, any earnings it has, is taxable to the minor. Which means it doesn't mean you have you know little Johnny, eight-year-old paying the taxes. It's just going to come out of the account. The custodian will write the check, but it's the minor's responsibility. So the minor, it will come out of the minor's account. Remember that the minor pays the taxes write the check they just it comes out of their account okay so everyone talks about this what's the max you can put in there is no max but everyone gets confused at this the maximum you can give to any one person at any one time each year is fifteen thousand dollars without having to pay taxes so if you put in 50 if you give so you guys can send me a check for 15 grand and it's not taxable to either one of us if you give more than 15 grand the amount over 15 grand is taxable to the donor so I'm not telling you to send me money, but if you want to, you can. Um, super check, that works in the lives. So now, if you put money into, if you, if I give, I open up an Ugma account and I put in 15 grand, I can do that every year, and there's no tax problems. Anything more than that, I'm gonna have to pay taxes. I'm the donor, I'm gonna have to pay taxes on everything above the 15,000. Now, if I'm managing the account, I can you say I hire you to manage the account, you can charge a fee for it. You can charge a reasonable fee for managing the account. It's if trustee accounts, any kind of account where you're managing it for someone else, you're allowed to charge an acceptable fee. Also, if you're managing the account and you're not good, say you're 22 years old, you just got the business and your parents go, hey, listen, I want to open up an account for your brother. Can you manage it? Well, you're still too young or inexperienced to do this. So what you can do is you can actually designate a third party like another investment advisor or a rep or an older person who knows what they're doing, who can manage it. You still have to be responsible for making sure it's okay, but you can it's it's prudent to have someone else who has more experience to manage the money. So traditional IRA. If you put money in a traditional IRA, it goes in pre-tax. It's an account that you set up for your retirement. So you put it in pre-tax, which means you don't pay taxes on it, which which, if you want to explain it this way, is. If I make fifty grand a year and I put six grand into my IRA, I get to reduce my taxable salary by six grand. So technically, according to the IRS, I only made forty-four thousand. So that means the money's never been taxed. So it goes in. You don't pay tax on the money now. You can bet. You can buy. You know, you can buy stocks, bonds, stuff like that. You can do certain. You can invest in a lot of different things on it. And as it grows, you don't owe taxes on it until you withdraw it. And the earliest you can withdraw without a penalty is 59 and a half. That's pretty much all retirement accounts. Most retirement accounts, you have to wait till you're 59 and a half to withdraw the money. Once you're at 59 and a half, you can withdraw it. And then you have to start withdrawing it. You have to start at the time you're 72. It used to be seven and a half, and a half. Now it's 72. So once you hit 72, you have to start withdrawing the money or they start penalizing you up to 50%. So again, put money in pre-tax. It grows tax deferred, which means you don't pay tax on it. Until you start taking it out, and then you pay tax on every penny because it's never been taxed. But the goal is that hopefully you'll be retired and you'll be in a lower tax bracket, so it'll cost you less. A um, couple of things though. So, if you want to open an IRA, you have to make sure that you have earned income. If they've have earned income, that means salaries, wages, royalties, stuff like that. You can't use passive income like limited partnership stuff. You can't use like dividends or capital gains to, if you make no money, if you live off a trust fund, woo. And you don't have any money, any earned income, then you can't put a dime in. So the whole point is you put the money in, it's pre-tax, it's earned income. As long you can put a hundred percent of your income in up to six thousand a year. Now the magic is is that if you go um, if you turn 50, woo, 50, then you can add another thousand. It's called the catch up provision. So once you hit 50, you can add another thousand dollars into it. Okay. Um, max is six thousand. So let's say, let's add to this. So let's say you have an account and you're married. Woo, you're married. Okay. So let's say you have an account and you're married. So it's you and your you and your wife or husband, um, and that person doesn't work. As long as you make enough money, you can put the money in. So as long as you make enough to cover the income. So if you make at least twelve thousand dollars a year in earned income. You can put six thousand for you and put six thousand in for your spouse. They're separate IRAs. So if you know you leave her or she leaves you, she walks away with it. It's hers to walk away with or his to walk away with. So as long as you the one of the people, one of the persons and the in the in the couple relationship have make at least the twelve thousand dollars, then you can both put in six. If you make five, then you can put in up to five grand, however way you want, but never more than six thousand. Okay, so. There's a difference between transfers and rollovers. Transfers is are you moving it from one um broker dealer to another? You have an IRA, you move it from JP Morgan, you move it to Schwab. Or you move it from JP Morgan to T D, whatever it is. That's a transfer. You're not doing anything crazy. You can do that, you can do that every two months if you want. It'd be weird, but you can there's no limit on that. Okay. But if you do a rollover, like basically you have a retirement plan like a 401k, and you're turning it into an IRA because you left your job, you can do that as a rollover without incurring taxes. The best way to do it is you wanna move it, like have the check be written directly to or wired to the new trustee. Like if you have the account of your old job, say it's at Fidelity and you wanna move it to Schwab, as an IRA, just have Fidelity do the check right to Schwab and then you don't have to worry about it. If you don't do it that way and you get the check to deposit, uh, you have to do it within 60 days or you're gonna attack. You have to deposit that money within 60 days or you're gonna taxes on it. There are other problems with it, which is for the seven, but of getting the check, but that's not, a, that's not your problem yet, okay? If you take money out of, your for, out of your IRA or any retirement account, before you turn 59 and a half, you're gonna get the taxes plus a penalty. There are some exceptions to that. So a qualified withdrawal means you don't pay the penalty. You do pay taxes, but not a penalty. So one qualified withdrawal is 59 and a half. Anything under that, it better be one of these reasons. If the owner becomes disabled, if the owner dies, um, if it's certain medical expenses, like if you have a certain amount of medical expenses or uh, premiums, stuff like that, um, basically first time home buyer, you can take out 10 grand. Um, you can use it for some sort of higher education. And if you do what they call an annuity, if they call it substantially equal periodic payments that are basically an annuity where you're getting paid for the rest of your life. You can do that anytime. So if you start, so you all are 22 or 23 or younger, hopefully, um, and you put the money in now and you start putting money in every month, every year, five, six grand every year. By the time you're 55, 60, there'll be a lot of money. You don't have to wait till you're 59. You just set it up as an annuity and get paid forever. Okay. There is that I mentioned before called an RMD where you have to start taking the money out by the time you're 72. So once you turn 72, you have to start taking the money out. Okay. The other one, which I always joke around, is the greatest thing ever invented in the history of Wall Street, is a Roth IRA. There's some limits to this. Like there's an income limit, which you won't have to do, but it's around 130 grand in that range. If you make over 130 grand, you can't do this. Um, there's no RMD, which means once you put money in, you can take it out anytime you want. After You don't have to start taking it out at 72, you can keep contributing till you're 100. Um, couple things. So now when you put the money in, it's not tax deductible, which means you don't get to use it to reduce your taxes. But this is the awesome part. Say you put in five grand right now. So you're 23, you put in five grand. Now you're 70, you take it out at 700 grand. You've paid taxes on the five grand. You don't pay taxes on any of the growth. So you have 700 grand of tax-free money. That's why it's the greatest thing ever. Okay. So again, you put the money in now, it grows tax-free, tax-free, tax-deferred. Once you hit, once you want to pull the money out, as long as you've held it for five years or more, you don't have to pay any taxes on that growth, which is awesome. And that's why they don't make you um, take it out when you're 72, because the IRS can't tax you anyway. So they don't really care. A couple things, though. Again, one, if you make too much money, you can't do it. Although there's a little backdoor called the backdoor Roth, where um, if you make too much money, what you can do is you can open up a regular IRA, put the money in there, and then roll it into the Roth. To pay taxes on it when you roll it, but it's it's a way in and it's not like it's not unheard of and it's not illegal. they built it in in there, okay. So if you want to take the money out, you should be 59 and a half or older. But if you want to take it out before that, you can if if just like the other one, if it died or disabled, you use it for a home, uh first-time home buyer, medical expenses, and use for college. Okay. They um if you don't if you don't f- fall under one of those rules, then you will have to pay taxes and a 10% penalty. What's kind of cool is that you, can, after you've held it for five years, you can actually take the principal out. So if you put in five grand for 10 years, and then after 15, 20 years, you want the money, you can take out all the money you put in without any taxes. Then you just let the, the stuff that you that grows, grow. Okay. All IRAs, both IRAs have contribution limits. You can put in six grand a year, up to 100% of your salary, up to six grand a year. Once you turn 50, you can add another 1,000. That's the numbers, okay? The difference is if you have a regular IRA and you make a shitload of money, you can still put money in. If you make a shitload of money, you cannot put in a Roth unless you do the backdoor Roth. Okay. You can put up to six grand a year, up to your income, both. Both you have a spousal. You can do the extra six grand for your spouse. Once you turn 50, you can add extra 1000 That's the same for both. Here's where it changes. Traditional, the money's probably deductible that you put in. The Roth, it's not deductible, which means you pay taxes. On the regular, you're always allowed to contribute, no earnings, uh, no income limit. Roth has an income limit. Traditional has an RMD, which means once you turn 72, you have to start taking it out. Roth does not have that. IRA, traditional IRA, withdrawals are subject to tax on the whole thing. Roth, no tax on it. Those are considered personal security uh, retirement accounts. So now we have corporate accounts, which are governed by ERISA, E-R-I-S-A. So if you see the word qualified, that means ERISA is involved and it's running the rules. Okay. So ERISA was created in the 70s to prevent corporations from abusing the retirement accounts and not managing it right and do that. So that's what they put this in. So ERISA has some rules. One, you have to, it's the eligibility, which means that anyone who is who is full time and over 21, if you offer benefit a retirement account for one person, you have to offer it for everyone. Full-time means over 21 and at least 1,000 hours a year, okay, which is around 25 hours a week. So as long, if you offer it to one person, you have to offer it to everyone. That's non-discrimination. Then they have a vesting schedule. Remember, so some retirement plans like 401Ks, the co- the employer could contribute money. Now, that doesn't mean if you leave after six months, you can walk away with that money. So they have a vesting schedule, which is like every year that you stay, you can take a bigger and bigger percentage of what the company put in for you. Usually after five years, it's going to be fully vested. That's kind of the rule. After five years, you are fully vested, which means any money, if you leave after five years, all the money they put in for you, you get to walk away with. If you leave before the five years is up, it's like a percentage. Like maybe after the first year, say they put in 10 grand for you and you can walk away with 20%, like two grand. It's so the vesting is just what you can walk away with. And every year you're there, it grows. The percentage that you can walk away with grows. Okay. So the investment part, the investment part of this is controlled strictly by ERISA. ERISA makes rules on what you can and can invest in, meaning the company and how it's more about how they invest, not so much what, but they have to make sure there's are certain things that are offered to the people, to the employees, like they have to make sure there's at least two or three choices of what you can put in. And remember, with a 401k, you're not buying individual stocks, you're buying mutual funds or some sort of, you know, closed-end fund maybe, or maybe even ETF. The point is you're investing in that and you're choosing where your money goes, stuff like that. So with qualified plans, you are putting money in pre-tax again, just like the IRA. You put money in pre-tax, you don't pay tax on it. It grows tax deferred. Okay. Now, if again, they have the rule 59 and a half is the earliest you can take the money out. You have to start taking it out when you're 72. Sounds familiar. It grows tax deferred. You don't pay taxes on anything until you take it out. And then you pay tax on everything when you take it out. And remember, all retirement accounts are taxed at ordinary income. Or not capital gains. All retirement accounts, variable annuities, everything is always taxed at ordinary income. They also have a non-discrimination clause, which means you can't just give it to the highly compensated people. Like you can't say, oh, listen, only the top 10% get to participate. No. If you offer to one single person, You have to offer it to every person who is full-time over 21. So we kind of did this a little bit. So taxation, when you get money out of a retirement account, it is always taxed at, the entire thing is taxed at the ordinary income rate. Ordinary income rate is what your tax bracket is, 20, 30, 40%, 39%, whatever it is. That's the progressive rate. There's no capital gains tax on retirement accounts. If you put money in a non-qualified account, that means you have paid taxes on the money, not a Roth I'm talking about, just a regular non-qualified account. That means the money that you put in has been taxed. So that money has been taxed. They will not tax it again. So if you put in five grand into a non-qualified account and it grows to 100, you will only owe taxes the 95,000. But here's what they do. The IRS will tax it on a LIFO, L-I-F-O, LIFO basis, which means they start at the 100 and work their way back, so that the last $5,000 coming out of your account is your return to principal, which is not taxable. So the taxable money comes out first. The easy way to remember is you put in 20 grand, it grows to 30. If you wanna take out 15,000, the first 10 grand, which is the growth is taxed. The last five grand is gonna be your return to principal. Always remember return to principal, return of to capital is never taxable. So we have a profit sharing plan. That's like basically you set up a plan and then if the company has good money, if they have a good year, they can give you more, they can give you less. They can skip. Okay. There's no, there's no requirement that they have to put money in any year, every year. They only do it if it hits certain benchmarks for the earnings, and it may not even hit them. And they may just go, you know what? We don't want to do it. The money in a profit sharing plan will be tax deductible, which means you will not pay taxes on it until you withdraw it. 401k, very similar. It's you set it up. I think I just talked about it, but I'm going to do it again. A 401k is a retirement plan. It's qualified, which means the money goes in pre-tax, which means it's not taxed. You put money in, the company can match if they want. They don't have to. They can change it every year. So they can go, look, we're going to match you up to the first 5% of your salary at whatever they want to do. There are limits, which you don't have to know, but there are limits how much they can put in and you can put in. That's not testable. But again, the money goes in pre-tax and then it grows tax deferred. And when you take it out, you get to pay taxes on the whole thing. Wonderful. Again, same rules. 59 and a half is early, so you can take it out. You must start when you're 72. The only difference here in a 401k is you can borrow some of it during the life of it, which is not taxable, but you'll pay interest. You have to borrow it and then they will um, pay it back through payroll deduction. Okay, guys, that's the end. You'll have a good night. Wash your hands and please like, subscribe and share.